Hello, and welcome to The Trumpet, the official podcast of Elephant Room Productions. This month, I'm talking with Shelley Pentamol Bookler, Philadelphia playwright, and we're going to be talking about her play On the Horizon. Shelley, thank you so much for talking with me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, as the conversation always goes, before we get into On the Horizon, which is one I'm really excited to talk about, um, can you just uh, expound a little bit about your theater background and what brought you to this point in your theater career? Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Um, well, I always started in theater. I actually got my first role when I was in kindergarten. I was actually an understudy for Sleeping Beauty, and the one who actually was Sleeping Beauty got a headache. I had nothing to do with it, I swear. Uh, so I got to go on um, as Sleeping Beauty and continued uh, throughout high school and then in college and ended up in graduate school um, to get a master's in theater art. And that is um, mostly where I discovered playwriting. Um, when I was an undergrad at Westchester, I was a minor in creative writing. I was doing poetry and prose, screenplay writing. Um, not so much playwriting, but, you know, ironically, because I had been doing some acting. Uh, but once I got to graduate school, that's where um, I was able to take some classes in playwriting and have some of my stuff actually performed um, at their little student black box theater. And I uh, ended up going, um, after a couple of years, to Temple for their MFA program in playwriting. So I got my MFA from there and have been continuing the journey ever since. Nice. Um, so would you consider yourself more of a playwright or more of an actress? I would say I blend the two. I, I have my hand in a whole bunch of different areas of theater. Um, I direct as well, and I choreograph. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, and my husband and I started a, a small nonprofit theater company a couple of years ago, Underbite Theater Company, uh, where we perform or we put on plays by uh, area playwrights. Um, we don't have a lot of money, so we don't do a lot. Um, but you know, it's nice to be you know part of that. So I would say uh, a little bit of everything is, is what I do. I'm, mo I'm concentrating a lot more on playwriting now. Um, I seem to have kind of fell into a nice rhythm, I guess you could call it. Um, right. So I've started really dedicating myself more to that area. But I'm still acting several times a week, um, every weekend, and having fun with that too. I just think it's interesting how this is one of the few careers that um – you don't really have to put yourself in a specific box. I always talk about it in almost every episode. We inevitably get on the number of hats that people wear. Um, and I always, I, I think back to, um, to give a random example, but um, when you look at like a hospital show, there's always one person that runs every machine in the hospital, even though that's not the way it works in their career. <laughs> Theater is the only career I can think about where it is so unbelievably common to do almost everything that yeah. The, yeah. the outlier is people who focus on only one thing and won't let any other aspect of theater in their life. And so, and you know, I know people who do that who are like actors and nothing else in theater. That is just what they do, or writers, and that is just what they do. Um, and that's great. I think I I have trouble um, people that I've gone to school with and people that I've talked to that have gone to you know um, school for theater. A lot of the programs really encourage right. that, that crossover. You're learning, you know, when you're taking, you know, even if you might be majoring in acting or in classes, lighting classes, costume classes as well. 
I guess my follow-up question, because I always like to ask this when there's uh, a multi-faceted hat wearer, um, did your experience in the other areas of theater help shape or change the way you think about your other focuses? Uh, I know you said you started acting. So I've, a lot of playwrights I've talked to start with the acting and they move on to playwriting. But um, mm-hmm. have, if since you go back and forth, has your experience in one area strengthened or changed any other aspects of theater for you? Oh, absolutely. I, I think the one thing, you know, as a playwright, I, I my goal is to write plays that actors want to do. Um, and that comes from, I think, me being an actor, because, you know, certainly when I look at a script, if I'm going to audition for something, I look at the script and I'm like, okay, is this a meaty role? Is this a good role? Is there, you know, a, a lot to this character? Is there a character that I, I get excited about playing? And, you know, so that's the kind of play that I want to write with characters like that. Um, so that's definitely one of the areas where um, it's been an influence. But also even as a choreographer, um, you know, I think about what the stage looks like. And I guess that partially as a director, too, you know, in terms of the visual. So when I'm writing something, I, I want to look for the theatricality. I want to look for, you know, moments where there's going to be, you know, beautiful movement that can happen and that can add to the narrative, that can add to the story. Um, so I think that, you know, all of the areas do kind of blend together. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be able to be in you know, all of those different roles, uh, because I do think that it makes um, me a stronger playwright, because I can look at it from with a director's eye, I can look at it with a choreographer's eyes, I can look at it from an actor's perspective. And I'm hoping that all of that comes together to create a stronger play where a director says, oh, there's a lot here for me to do with this. And an actor says, oh, there's some great roles in this for me. So that that's well, what spoiler I spoiler alert, I hope. you have succeeded. With oh, yay. This <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Thank which, you. I, which actually more or less it's a good enough segue as any to uh move the conversation to specifically on the horizon great um so before we uh before we go into uh the play could you just kind of set up the basic premise of the story and give us a little taste of the scene we're going to hear today Oh, absolutely. Uh, so this play is uh, written about um, the people who were on the SS Californian, which is an actual ship, a British ship that was going from London to Boston uh, in 1912. And, you know, people generally know that year because that is the year that the Titanic was sent from uh, London to the U.S. Um, but most people don't know about this other ship that was out there. Um, so what happened is that the uh, the character or the uh, the captain um, on the Californian was you know coasting along in the middle of the Atlantic and all of a sudden hit a loose ice field and so they decided to stop for the night because they thought it was too dangerous they knew that there were icebergs in the area they had already sent out a CQ um, which is like a distress call essentially not a distress call but a um, warning signal um, to all the other ships in the area to say hey there's some icebergs in the area and some ice you know in the field um, just to make sure that everybody was warned. So they stopped for the night, and then what happened was later in the night when the captain had retired to his quarters, the crewmen that were still um, on duty started seeing these rockets in the distance, and they immediately went down to the captain and were like, hey, captain, we're seeing these rockets. We don't know what's going on. And the captain was like, oh, no, 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 it just must be company transmission. You know, it's just company signals. It's nothing. It's nothing. And so they kept watching, um, and then that's when they also started to see the lights um, in the distance of what was 
they found out later was Titanic, um, starting to flicker. And at first they thought it was a Morse signal, and then they realized, no, there was just something wrong with it. And then all of a sudden the lights went out, and they saw more distress rockets. And again, they kept wait, trying to wake the captain to say, look, we really need to do something. And the captain was like, nope, 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 not going to do it. I'm sleeping. Leave me alone, essentially. And then they discovered the next morning when the wireless came on that it was, in fact, Titanic, and that they were less than 10 miles away from Titanic when it sunk. And everybody knows, of course, the story of the Titanic. And pe- most people know the Carpathia, which is the ship that, you know, yeah. came and took most of the survivor or, well, whoever, you know, was still alive. Um, and the Carpathia had come from over 50 miles away. And so imagine if this ship, the Californian, which was only about 10 miles away from them, had actually immediately responded, how many lives could have been saved? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the scene that we're um, going to hear, <laughs> sorry, moment, um, the scene yeah. that we're going to hear is actually um, after the, the crewmen had discovered that the Titanic um, had sunk, and they, um, you know, again, they were very restless because, you know, they felt like they could have done something, and it was the captain who was preventing them, and of course, you know, back in the day, as it is now, but, you know, even more so then, you know, the hierarchy was so important, and listening to authority, paying attention to authority, so if you got an order, you you really couldn't do anything. You know, you're kind of strapped to that. Um, uh, Otherwise, you know, it could be considered, you know, a a mutiny. Um, So they felt like, you know, they were not able to. So they turned against the captain um, in terms of his decision. So the the scene is between two of the crewmen, uh, Gibson and Sparks. Sparks is the wireless operator, um, and uh, Jimmy Gibson, who was a crewman apprentice, who are actual real people. I mean, all of these characters are real people who were on the uh, Californian. Right. Um, or based on, I should say. Um, but, yeah, so this is uh, the two of them discussing, you know, what happened, you know, the day after they discovered that, you know, the Titanic had sunk and that they were, you know, they were forced to pretty much do nothing. All right. Let's take a listen. Okay. What do you think it was like? Terrifying, no doubt. That's not what I imagined. But I cannot help it. Nothing could prepare us for it. Think you'll be the hero of the story, I? Thinking maybe you can do something to... I don't know, make it better, I guess. I'd have thought I would have been like Captain Salmon. Who? Captain Salmon from the Birkenhead. You know the story, I? Uh, like the drills? Uh, where we do the order of lifeboats and the women and children thing? Aye. I always play the mum. Whenever we do them, I pretend I'm Captain of Birkenhead. Gil bought a wig for me to wear once. You know why we do it? And a doll to carry about. Sparks! Die. Practice for a wreck. To remind us of the honour in being a sailor. You know of his wreck then, the one that started this? A little. His ship went down in Africa. Aye. HMS Birkenhead left Portsmouth carrying soldiers and their wives and children. Horses? Horses? Aye, horses too. En route to South Africa to fight the frontier war. Right off the coast of Cape Town, they hit an uncharted rock, sliced right through the hull, splitting engine room to the forepeak. Only two lifeboats were usable from the position of the pull of the sea, and Captain Robert Salmon ordered the sailors and the sailors to stand aside, let the women and children on the boats first. And they did. 
they stood with honor, side by side, knowing the only chance to survive would be to swim to the land or stay afloat on the refuse until another ship came about. Did they survive? Every 600 were on the ship, only 200 survived. The men drowned? Or were taken by the sharks. Bloody hell! There's a painting, you know, of the wreck of Birkenhead. I saw it before we set out. The ships falling into the water, soldiers and crewmen standing aside, climbing the mast to look about. A young lass holding under her mum as the water laps at her feet. I wondered when I was looking at that, which one I would actually be. Helping a lady onto a lifeboat, or holding a lad to keep him dry as he's passed to his mum. I'd have thought it would have been something... Doing something like that. Or standing proud, yet scared, but with the honour knowing I would die in order to let those others live. Yet I stood on that bloody bridge and did nothing for those in Titanic. How can I face Margaret Purdy now? What are the horses? What of them? Did they survive? Some of them, I suppose. Ones that could swim. I like horses. Makes you wonder how many of the men stood with honour on Titanic. How many pushed the women aside to save themselves. Yeah, what of a captain? What of ours? And we're back. Um... So first things first, I I will say forthright that growing up, um, I don't know if this is crude, but I was a this is a crude statement or not, but I was a huge Titanic file growing up. Mm -hmm. um, I had every book you could have about the Titanic. I was obsessed with all of the information. I apologize to our artistic director Lauren Krebs who this is one of her favorite movies but I've never been a f I've never <laughs> been hugely fond of the um uh the Leonardo DiCaprio movie um <laughs> but uh, I'm sorry that um, if I if I lose listeners from this I apologize but there's my the hill I'm gonna die on is that there's a reason it won best screenplay but not or best picture but not best screenplay <laughs> That is um, a very good point for people to remember, yes. That being said, <laughs> um, I adored, uh, the, there's a movie, uh, You uh, knowing, reading this play makes me think that you had a similar passion for this type of history, and you're probably familiar with the movie A Night to Remember. Of course, yes. Um, the best Titanic movie. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so this, a lot of the things that came up in this movie... Or, sorry, my apologies. A lot of the things that came up in this script uh, really, you know, spoke to, you know, seven to ten year old Robert uh, who wanted every book about the Titanic and wanted to know everything about the Titanic. So just I, of all the things I learned about the Titanic and its sister ships, I did not know the story of the Californian. I knew everybody knows. Like you said, everybody knows about the Carpathia. Um, but... It's very rare to... Uh, this is a story I was not very familiar with. Um, so as we may have gathered, it's a little bit of a heavy piece because mm -hmm, it's a little mm -hmm. bit of a heavy subject matter. Um, so what was it about this story um, that triggered you to tell it? Uh, well, ironically, it, it wasn't actually my idea. It was my husband's idea. He had known about the Californian before I did. Um, so he, uh, I was interested in it because I did a, 
uh, a show called Scotland Road um, many years ago, which was um, a, a more fantasy piece by um, Jeffrey Hatcher um, that had to do with, you know, somebody who was found on this iceberg who um, claimed that she had been on the Titanic. But of course, this took place, you know, years and years and years later. So it was not yeah. possible for that to, to be. Um, and about the guy who claimed that he was... Um, John Astor, who was trying to break her down. So that, that I've always had, you know, ever since then in particular, I've had a fascination with it because I did a lot of research when, because um, I directed that piece, I did a lot of research on it. But uh, again, like you, I had never heard of the Californian. And it was my husband who had known about it because he had done presentations. He was doing market research at the time. And he uh, saw it as an example of what to do when you have collected all of this data, you know, and you know that there's something important that needs to be said with it, but you can't convince, you know, the person in the highest authority to do anything about it and the frustration that comes with that. And so he came to me one day and he's like, hey, I have an idea for a play. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and that's when, you know, he, he told me the story and, and about the, the drama of it. And I was like, that is really fantastic. You know, I love that idea. So I immediately started doing all the research. I read all of the transcripts from, there was a, a British inquiry after this incident, um, after Titanic sank, and also oh, a... Uh, trust that after this reading, we all... In, you might have heard this in the <laughs> feedback, but we all, I immediately went to Wikipedia uh -huh. and found everything about, <laughs> everything I could about this. Um, I'm going to leave this part in unedited, um, but uh, because it's been a while since he's made a genuine appearance on the podcast. But if my audio cuts out at any point, it's because Albus, my cat, is very intrigued by <laughs> uh, my headphone jack. I am literally... Um, a phrase I love to use in this podcast, not to pull back the curtain on how I do this, but um, this month I am recording in my downstairs uh, powder room because it has the best acoustics. <laughs> and he, with the, he could not, does not want anything to do with me if I'm in a room with him, but if the door is closed... Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I actually off. just opened the uh, I'm in my upstairs office and I actually just opened the door because I heard my my pug mix who was scratching at the door. Because, again, if I'm in here with the door open, he doesn't care. But as soon as I close the door, then he's scratching at it like, oh, my gosh, I got to get in there. I actually I heard him right before we started. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 Something's outside that um, he's barking at. Uh, anyway, where, uh, where did we leave off? Uh, with the uh, tra uh, the inquiries. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, as soon as the feedback uh, was over, and actually during the feedback, we looked com we looked very uh, intently at the uh, the outcome of these characters because um, not to give too much away about the play, but um, the actual consequences of their actions are or it's, uh, specific characters' actions. The captain. The actual consequences are not. Uh, as much explored in the ending uh, as the, the audience is kind of left to go do that homework on their own, which mm -hmm. I loved because I, I very much was interested <laughs> in doing it. Um, so did you, uh, uh, do you tend to write uh, about historical periods usually, or was this just because of this, the concept of the power struggle and the abuse of power? Was that what, uh, really sold it for you. 
Yeah, this is, uh, I think, maybe the second one that I wrote that was based on something that was historical or something that is uh, that was real. Um, the last one I did was actually on the uh, Supreme Court uh the controversy involving the Supreme Court decision against the Westboro Baptist Church and Fred Phelps that happened uh, in, uh, it was about 13 years ago, I believe it was. Um, it. Didn't they, what, they, their free speech was protected, right? Yeah, their free, um, it turned out after finally going to the Supreme Court that they could, in fact, you know, because they were within the, the realm of the law, they could be out there and protesting these funerals. And so I wrote the, uh, the music, I wrote a musical about it. And it ended up premiering at the Philadelphia Fringe Festival. And what was fascinating is that I, I thought I was going to be protested. I was actually looking forward to it. I was like, come on, Westboro Baptist people. Come, you know, you protest Laramie all over the place. Let's see you come over here. I figured good publicity. Uh, they did not. But it turns out that Albert Snyder, who is the, the main character in my piece, who actually was the father of the Marine who died, um, who ended up taking it all the way to the Supreme Court, he ended up coming to the show opening night. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was amazing to me. And again, it just, it, it was a nice reminder of how important it is, especially when you're writing stories about real people or real events that happened. You really do have to get it right um, and be very thorough in your research. And that's what I tried to do here with On the Horizon. I read all of the um, inquiries from the United States and from Britain. Um, I read numerous articles about it, um, even the old newspaper articles about it, to try to get as much of the story accurate as possible. Well, of course, you know, making yeah. it dramatic also. Well, and I think you succeeded, too. And you, <laughs> you really succeeded in... Um what I think really helped with the drama of the piece and the stakes of the piece is how very specific the rank and uh, position of each character is, both their position yeah. on the ship and their position in life. Um, not to get away from the seriousness and the the drama, but going back to the scene we just listened to, um, dear God, those two characters were a light in the darkness of the darkest dark tunnel at times um <laughs> and i um it and i it was quite entertaining <laughs> to read oh, uh, as well because i was, I was reading you. sparks for that um and uh it, yeah it was what was the inspiration behind the characterization of those two i know the the names are from the ship but uh how did you develop those kind of lighter characters in this see a pardon the pun of darkness <laughs> um i you know what it, it actually did come from just the need to make sure that i had humor in there and that i yeah. had characters that were going to be likable there's some very unlikable characters in this and i tend to yeah. write some unlikable characters um and i wanted to also make sure that you know there there were characters that people could relate to, characters that people could laugh with, could laugh at even. Um, so I really created those two characters um, to, to fulfill that need in there. Um, and their voices, I'm not sure exactly where they came from. Um, you know, it, it wasn't so evident in 
the inquiries or anything that I read. It's just that they were, they're kind of like the lowest level characters when it comes to the hierarchy. So I knew that I could have a little bit more fun with them because they could be more, you know, just kind of guys, you know, I mean, and, and these guys are like, you know, 20 years old. They're very young. And so, you know, if you're 20 years old, you know, 20 year old um, sailor who's stuck on a ship for weeks, um, you know, I think sometimes you get a little punchy and I wanted yeah. to create some of that punchiness. <laughs> And it's funny because we saw, I think we saw a lot of that even in a more serious note from the other characters from, um, Mm. uh, which is a really unique, uh, group to have because like, like you said, you can't have a 90, I think this, this play runs about 90 minutes. I think we had, it was, um, it seemed like a, a very reasonable length. Um, but even that you can't have a whole that whole stretch without that little breather here and there (laughs) so yeah i think think the balance i think you found was very appropriate for the subject matter oh good thank you thank you yeah and also i mean i needed them to be real people you know that's the other thing too they can't just be you know representatives and it it was Mm -hmm. it was the point where i almost forgot at times that you know these the the most uh, we know about these people are their names. Uh, now, obviously, right. the captain and you know Gibbs and some of the others have some testimonies and have some record. But you know, as as far as the day to day, I forgot uh, in the midst of reading this that you know we we don't necessarily know what fights transpired or what disagreements or even what kind words transpired between these people. So you right. definitely succeeded in building three-dimensional characters out of names in a history book. Oh, great. Yay. So good to hear. Um, So what's next for this play? Uh, Well, um, Beacon Theater had some interest in it. They um, are a theater outside here of Philadelphia. um, who do a lot of, they specialize in historical plays. And I'm hoping that they uh, want to do a public staged reading of it. They were thinking about it um, for January or February. So I'm hoping that happens. Um, I've also, I mean, I've sent it out to a number of different contests, like national contests and, you know, workshops and things like that. So I keep, I keep throwing it out there to see, you know, who wants to, you know, take it someplace or, you know, even help me develop it further. Um, I did revise it again after uh, hearing your feedback and the, uh, the voices in, um, from the reading uh, because it was so helpful. It was so helpful. Um, and I'm, especially with the feedback, it was really great to hear, first of all, like you got some of the political area niches that are in there. Was, was, um, that, be honest, was that me that brought that up? Because I feel like I... I, I think it was. <laughs> I, I believe I it was. It, I find it everywhere now, and it's kind of hard not to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I wrote... What is that right? Because I was taking notes on the feedback, and what was it? Oh, yes. The allegory of Trump. Yes. Alternative facts with an exclamation point. I was like, yay, because it's pretty much <laughs> what you said. And I was like, yay. <laughs> Oh, good. But I mean, it's it, and what's brilliant about it is that you know, and we we just did another play recently that had uh, it was another historical play that had those undertones to it. And what's amazing about it is that whether or not that's the direct inspiration, it goes so beyond you know the specific Trump example or even a Democrat Republican example. I mean, it's it, this 
repeated cycle of throughout history of, you know, there will always be someone in power manipulating the facts in their mm-hmm. favor. And, you know, you can walk into a theater no matter, you know, what you support politically or what celebrity you support or whatever. Um, and you can still find that meaning in someone that has hurt you in some way. Uh, yeah. Someone in power who used it in the wrong way. And I think it's so brilliant to look to, to I mean, I, I just think back to the crucible, like the prime example of mm-hmm. you look at the, the surface of that play, what it's about, and then the undercarriage of what it's really representing. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, and you have done that very well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was trying not to beat anyone over the head with it, but you, 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 know, make it you definitely clear. did not. <laughs> Um, oh, good, good. Well, before we wrap, uh, I just be especially with a play that uh, has so many shadows cast over some of the characters. Um, <laughs> I always like to wrap up with a light theater question. Um, sure. Beginning of the podcast, it was a lot of drinking questions. Um, and now I've tried to really find a way to tie in the specific play we're talking about uh, as best I can. So my question for you today is, if you could move any character from any other play uh, into On the Horizon, who would have the best chance of convincing the captain to respond to this call? Ooh, oh, wow. So like the most persuasive character. Oh, my goodness. Whether it's persuasive or through fear, <laughs> however. Yeah, who, who any, any of the tactics, whether it's an emotional appeal or a logical appeal. Well, I think the captain is very much uh, not so much into the realm of being persuaded by an emotional appeal. I think it would be a logical appeal, but somebody with sympathy. Maybe. Yeah. I'm thinking like a Jean Valjean type of person, somebody who has authority and experience and somebody you just kind of listen to who might be able to like talk to him on that kind of level. They, oh my God. They, I, I'm now, well now I'm, I'm picturing the scene playing out, but I don't know if my, uh, my brain is competing with itself of whether I'm picturing Colm Wilkinson, Jean Valjean, <laughs> or Hugh Jackman, Jean Valjean. I, I, I go with Colm. I, I'm a Colm fan, so that that's where I always go. Um, and, and I almost see, like, if, if this were going to be a musical, this would kind of be the standoff between Jean Valjean and Javert. This would be the, I, I feel like that could actually happen were this a musical. You must not leave that ship to die! <laughs> That's my, that's exactly. my best, that's my best Colm Wilkinson. And it's not, that's not saying much. That, that was not bad. That, I, I, it was recognizable. It was recognizable. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that classy note, thank you again, <laughs> Shelly, for talking with me today. Uh, thank would you. you. Would you recommend the ears program to any other playwright? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I already have. I told I used to, uh, oh, I was wonderful. a co-moderator at Philly Dramatist Centers, their Playwrights Happy Hour. I told folks about it there and I'll put in a reminder next time I'm there. And, um, and also I'm going to send you another play because I just finished a new one. So hopefully I can uh, nice. do that one too. Uh, yeah. You will be glad to read it. It will be a pleasure just like this one was. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, Of course. To any other playwrights out there, just remember, as always, if you have a play to send us, 
please, please, please send it to erpsubmissions at gmail.com. Remember, every story deserves to be heard, so join our Elephant Herd today. Until next time, this is Robert Jean Pelleccio, signing off. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Of course. Um, and to any other playwrights out there, just remember, as always, uh, if you have a play that you want read, please, please. Oh, my God. Albus, leave the shower curtain alone. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> One moment. I just need to, I just need to record an outro. Get out.